2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, and this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, it's Max. Before we get started, I want to tell you about one of our sponsors, HP Matter. HP Matter is a magazine put out by HP and Fast Company. It's all about uh, the future of science and technology. The newest issue is the telecommunications issue. It's got tons of articles about how we are going to talk to each other in the future, about the technology that's going to make it possible, about the companies that are doing that work. Uh, So if you're interested in how we're going to talk to each other in the future, go check it out hpmatter.com. That's a way of supporting the show, uh, and we really appreciate their sponsorship. Okay, here we go. Hello. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hello. Zanga. Zanga, Zanga. Cracker Jack. Uh, we, we got a great show for you here. Max, who's on it? Uh, you guys, this week I talked to Stephen Dubner. You might know his name uh, because he is uh, one of the two authors of Freakonomics. I've heard of that. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, a successful book franchise. <laughs> Single-handed franchise. Saved, saved really the airport is. bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a Freakonomics essay. Like, yeah. can one book save an airport bookstore? Uh, Dubner is, uh, he also hosts a podcast. He's a, he's a good talker, and he was like, he was ready to talk. It came in kind of an interesting moment. They have a new book out. It's called Went to Rob a Bank, and it's a collection of their best blog posts they've been doing for like 10 years. 10 years, significant number, because uh, Freakonomics, the original Freakonomics, came out like exactly 10 years ago. So he was just coming off the like 10-year anniversary of this book, which totally changed his life, and which it turns out he did not expect to change his life at all. Like He had very low expectations for that book. Uh, they were like desperately just trying to get any attention for it, and then it came out, and it turned out to be a massive, life-changing hit. Yeah. What does that feel like? Well, I'll tell you one thing. It feels like you have uh, an apartment on the Upper West Side that you live in with your family, and then you have another apartment on the Upper West Side that you go to in the morning and just work from and it's your office. Here's the thing that's in that apartment. Uh, Stephen Dummer is the only person in the world, other than my father, who I've seen uh, has a lamp covered in all of the lanyards from like conventions he's gone to and speaking engagements. And it's this very like iconic thing that my dad does, hundreds of lanyards all around this lamp. And I walked into Dubner's house and he had the same thing and it freaked me the fuck out. So do you think he might be your father? <laughs> I, well, that is the, basically the tenor of the conversation is like, are you my dad? Yeah. This is going to be some kind of episode. <laughs> <laughs> I want to plug something. 
Evan doesn't know what I'm going to plug. It's a, I'm, about to, I'm about to blast him with my plug. I really enjoyed the most recent Atavist story. Um, it's about, uh, I don't know if you've heard of this festival that ha- you, happened in uh, Mali in the desert uh, where these uh, Touareg musicians would bring in all kinds of people to play. Um, two of the people who founded it, one of them continues to try to uh, keep it going on. The other one has become an insurgent of sorts. It is a wild story. It's by Josh Hammer, who is great. I recommend it. Thanks, Aaron. Normally, we have to pay for the privilege of getting plugged. By not, not on this show, baby. <laughs> you can, I mean, you can tip me. <laughs> well, since you did the plug, I'll do our sponsor this Whoa. week. Whoa! It's Tiny Letter. It's from the people at Mailchimp. You can use it to create a very simple newsletter that you send out to an ever-expanding group of people who are interested in what you do. It's the best way to do that. Wow. Ever expanding. A lot of firsts in this intro. Uh, here is Max with Stephen Dubner. Your new book is out. It's called When to Rob a Bank. Yeah. Uh, it is the first book in the, this series of books that you've done with your partner, Stephen Levitt, that does not have freak in the title. Uh, it's true. Yeah, it's true. Was that like a big decision? Honestly, you know, the bad moment is when you're getting ready to give a talk somewhere or like to do an interview or whatever, and you get introduced, which is a, a, an uncomfortable situation anyway. And then they'll say, author of Freakonomics, Super Freakonomics, and Think Like a Freak. And then uh, the Freakonomics blog and Freakonomics radio, and think, God, this guy has got to diversify, if only in title. <laughs> so yeah, we were pretty eager to have a title that didn't have it in it. Although I will say this, for the publisher, it's a bit of a dilemma because they see it as a series. I mean, it is a series sort of, uh-huh. um, you know, it's a bunch of books by the same guys. So, um, but no, I was really happy. It's not, I'll tell you the story of the original title because this is not the original title. Publisher probably doesn't want me to tell you the story, but I'm going to tell you anyway. So we came up with a title that I thought was the best book title we'd ever had for anything. Oh, Freakonomics is a great title. We didn't come up with it. Steve Levitt's sister came up with it. Oh, really? When we wrote our first book, we just, you know, we had this manuscript. We were really, we really had a blast doing it. We didn't know if it would do any, any good at all. Uh, but we had no idea what to call it. And because it didn't really have a theme, it didn't have any. So we're coming up with all these generic, horrible titles like, you know, it ain't necessarily so and just <laughs> bad, bad, bad. The one that we somehow for like 24 hours got really excited about was called E-Ray Vision, like X-Ray Vision, but E like for economists, <laughs> thinking that that was somehow very clever. So just dreadful titles. And then uh, Levitt gave the manuscript to his sister, Linda, who had worked in publishing and advertising and she gave came back with about 80 or 100 titles one of them was Freakonomics and we're like wow that is so outrageously bad that it's great when you saw it you were like that's the one Levitt saw it then he sent me the list he professes that I was ambivalent at first I don't that's not my memory but um I remember thinking it was an awesome title but I didn't know if it Like I said, I thought it was kind of so bad that it's good, but I didn't know if it was quite bad enough to be good. (laughs) The publisher did not like it, but they ultimately came around. But but this time for this book, which is um, the new book, When to Rob a Bank. So we originally called it Hooray for High Gas Prices, which we liked okay. And the idea was that there's a post in the book. So this is a book that's made up of what we think are kind of the best blog posts from 10 years worth of blogging. And uh, there was a post that Levitt wrote called, I think, Hooray for High Gas Prices that was basically, here's why a lot of people think wrong about the economics of gas prices and why high gas prices would actually be a lot better for a lot of things other than the people who have to really, who suffer from paying a lot. And the problem with that title, our U.S. publisher liked it, we're ready to go with it, but then the British publisher said, 
uh, here, you know, it's petrol and gas means intestinal gas. So right. <laughs> that title just doesn't work. So then we thought, well, we'll come up with a different title for them. But it's a little weird to have a book with different titles and different continents. We didn't really like that idea. But, you but can anyway, just do like hooray for high petrol. Prices. Well, we thought about that and that just didn't have any kind of flow. So I came up with a title for them that I liked so much that we then wanted it to be the title for this. And it was um, we were only trying to help. And I liked the title because it felt like it really felt like us. Like the idea of this book is for 10 years, we've been blogging. We wrote, you know, over 8,000 blog posts. And in most cases, it's different than the book. It's more kind of casual, sometimes more fun, more sometimes argumentative. A lot of times it's just raising a question. It's not about all the research necessarily. It's about raising question. And it, we were only trying to help really seem to us to connote like this is all we're, you know, we're just throwing ideas out there. Just a couple of guys blogging. Just a couple of guys blogging. That's exactly right. And what was interesting is both our editor here and our editor in the UK both really, really liked it like us. But then somehow the business side of the publishers thought it sounded either like dis like self-flagellating or mm -hmm. dismissive or or something well, it does have an air of like, yeah, but it didn't work. I guess so. Uh, to me, that just feels like us. Like we, <laughs> you know, we we try as hard as we can at what we do, but you know, we're not. We don't take ourselves too seriously. So anyway, then we needed to look for another title and when to rob a bank. We ended up liking a lot um, because it's not how to rob a bank or why to rob a bank. It's the when, which is kind of our kind of question. Right, like you've so, already uh, you've already moved on. You've made the decision to exactly, rob the bank. Exactly. Now it's just it's about of like, uh, details. Yeah. But then looking at the bank robbery data was super, super fun. So it turns out that. So first of all, if you're going to rob a bank, you will likely average about three robberies before you get caught. So that's it's a really hard crime to get away with. Second of all, you don't make very much money. I think the average take was roughly in this country about $1,500. So this is not setting you up for retirement. But here's the thing that I found most interesting is when, as far as the when to rob a bank, I mean, the short answer is never because the ROI is, is really dreadful on it as a crime goes. But um, it turns out that the most successful hours to rob a bank are easily in the morning. And yet the vast majority of actual bank robberies are in the afternoon. Is that just because like uh, bank robbers are late sleepers? Well, that's that's kind of the conclusion you come to, which is that, man, if these guys could have been waking up earlier generally, then they probably would have had a job and they wouldn't have had to rob a bank at the first place. But the idea that the guys who are doing this for a living do it during the absolute worst time, yeah. like, obviously they didn't have the data. That reminds me, I lived on a hall freshman year and uh, we like it was like just a complete smattering of people. Like there were no shared interests at all among <laughs> anyone who lived on the hall and we couldn't figure it out. Like what, everything else is very strategic where I went to school. It's like if people are placed, I think it's like a real science how they match people up, you know? And then we were just on this hall and no one had anything in common. And then we realized that uh, it was a hall of all people who had never sent in the housing preference oh. form. <laughs> they just take everyone uh. who like never did anything, all the like lazy, disorganized people, right, and just right. like put them all in one that place. How did it work out? I toasted my uh, freshman roommate at his wedding. There you go. So, so yeah. much for social engineering, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you just had the 10-year anniversary of the original. We did. We didn't. We book. kind of forgot to celebrate it, but we did really? last month, April. Yep. You didn't do anything? We did zero. Totally forgot about it. Did someone like come up to you and remind you? I saw a couple tweets about it. <laughs> the one thing is that we did time this book, the new book, to coincide with the 10th year. Uh, so it's coming out about uh, uh, 10 years and a month or six weeks after the original. Yeah. But um, on the actual day when it was published, which was honestly one of the most exciting days of my life, because we weren't expecting that much. 10 years ago. 10 years ago. Yeah. We really weren't. Um, 
And, you know, Levitt was here. He lives in Chicago. He was here and we were, quote, promoting the book. But when you put out a new book and it's not, you know, you're not a blockbuster author, you're not a celebrity, promoting a book isn't very exciting. You're going wherever you can to get any kind of interview you can, a lot of which is kind of, you know, substandard. But it started to blow up. Um, We got a review in the Wall Street Journal, maybe the day before, the day of, and then things just started to snowball really fast. And like literally the day that uh, he was here to promote the book, they got some early sales figures and we were at the publisher's office. They were getting the live numbers coming in and uh, they said, well, this will definitely make the New York Times list. And I was like, are you kidding? You know, (laughs) I'd written two books before. One of them had done pretty well, uh, the other not so well. And I'd worked at the New York Times. To me, like being on the New York Times bestseller list was like, I'll die now. It's fine. And then I was thinking, you know, the list was there's 15 books on the nonfiction hardcover list. So I thought we'd be like, you know, maybe 15, 14. They said, you're, we're probably going to come in between number four and number seven. Like, are you kidding? <laughs> and then I thought it would be just one week, but then it kept going on and on. And then they decided that day even to go back to the printer, print a whole bunch of new covers with the words New York Times bestseller. This was all happening on this one day. And it was ama- It was just a, it was a blast and very, un- very surprising. And, and yet I forgot entirely to commemorate it 10 years later <laughs> what was it like between the two of you that day like did it feel like like hitting the lottery it, like total it's exactly what it, it, it was so, so first of all it was really weird it, it was really weird because it's a little bit like um not deja vu but those those states that people get in that they sometimes describe like a kind of zone where you kind of you're doing something but you kind of see it happening at the same time and it wasn't so much that it was just overwhelming. It was exciting and happy. The weird part was that we just kept getting like every break. The reviews were good and then other stuff would happen. Some, you know, bookstore chain would decide to put it on their homepage, you know, um, we couldn't get on TV because a book called Freakonomics about economics with two authors, both wear eyeglasses. You know, it's just like both named Stephen. Yeah, both named Stephen makes it all that much more confusing. So we were getting zero TV, like not even, you know, little cable news, nothing. And then um, we wrote an op ed. We adapted a piece of the book um, for an op ed for USA Today, which was considered a very kind of, you know, midbrow thing to do for highbrow, you know, because usually you go for the New Yorker or the New York Times Magazine or whatever. But I, you know, I like USA Today. And our book was really about, a lot of it was about the things that a big audience could appreciate, we thought. Was it designed to reach a big audience? It wasn't really designed. It was just, you know, I wrote an article about Steve Levitt for the New York Times Magazine. I found him fascinating and his work fascinating. I went back and read that Uh Levitt profile and there's something kind of eerie about it. And I started thinking about like, there aren't a lot of sort of like famous instances of that, right? Of like you, a journalist covering someone and then deciding like, fuck it, I'm going to partner with this person, which I think is like, probably goes through journalists' head a lot when they're working on a story. It's like, you're kind of like living these other people's lives and like maybe you see some opportunity. Like I always wonder about like business reporters and like investing in stocks, you know? Yeah. And the the only example I could think of was uh, John Landau. And Which John Land- Oh, John Land. I forgot he was a writer. He became his manager. Yeah, he was a rock critic. That's right. And he wrote that's this right. famous line that was like, that's I've right. seen the future of oh, rock yeah, and roll. Right. And, and his Bruce, name is Bruce, Bruce Springsteen, Bruce, right? Right. Yeah. And then he was like, actually, it is so clearly the future of rock and roll that I'm going to quit writing yeah, that's and good... I'm going to manage Bruce wow. Springsteen. Yeah. Uh, I would like to say I was that clever and that I'd <laughs> seen the future. So 
with Levitt, I was actually thinking the opposite. So I was working on this book about, like I said, behavioral economics, which Levitt was not at all. Sometimes people call him a behavioral economist, and he's kind of become a little bit more of one, but that's not what he did at all. In fact, I turned down the assignment like three times because I was about two chapters into this book I was writing. I didn't want any distractions. And then the only reason I ended up meeting with him in Chicago was because I was already going to be there for something else. So I thought, well, I'll take another day or two and read a bunch of his papers. And his papers were so interesting that I then decided to interview him. But I definitely didn't think about I should write a book with or about this guy. I just wanted to get back to my other book. He had no interest in writing a book. But I will say this. Once the article came out and people wanted a book, some people were approaching me, some were approaching him. My very first thought was what you just said, which was, well, I can't do that because I was a journalist covering him and he was a subject. And you can't just like you can't just like take that relationship and pervert it into partnership. And then we talked, I talked about it with a lot of people. I talked about it with friends. I talked about it with an editor at the New York Times Magazine, which where I used to work as an editor and now was working as a writer freelance. Talked about it with, you know, my agent, with my wife. And I decided that there'd been no intent to create a partnership, that it was a pure piece of journalism that turned into something and that it was okay. I will tell you, not that long before that, I'd written a piece about Steven Spielberg for the Times Magazine. I got to spend like maybe four days with him. He had a really slow week in uh, in in L.A. And it was really I really enjoyed it a lot. He's really interesting, obviously smart, et cetera, et cetera. And my first book uh, had just been published, and it was a, a memoir about coming from this Jewish family where my parents converted, and then I kind of wound up going back to Judaism. And Spielberg is, you know, big time into all kinds of Jewish stuff big and these Jew. stories, big Jew. And I will tell you that the four days I spent with him, I was really, 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 really careful to never bring up anything about that part of me or my book or anything, just because, you know, it would have felt gross would have felt gross just sort of inserting yourself into that story yeah and like even like making him think for a second that this guy is kind of quid pro quo at me uh-huh. you know it, it's just i'm old school when it comes to journalism like what you do and what you don't do yeah. and um to me that was what you don't do but this somehow because it felt random well there was no intent going right. in or you, during at all because right. it was just kind of something that happened yeah it almost sounds like like a heavy, like an affair or something. Right. <laughs> it's right, just like, right. I don't know what happened and I was right. in love. <laughs> life is crazy. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. part of it also, I assume was like, oh, I'll do this book and then like, I'll go back to my life. Yeah. I actually had a two book deal. One of which was this behavioral economics book, which was called, um, I still like this title too. I hope I get to use it someday. It was called money makes me happy parenthesis, except when it doesn't. And it's about, you know, the relationship between money and how we feel about stuff. So I had that book and I had another book lined up that I'd done a ton of work on. I, um, put together this group. This book was called the ethics club, put together a group of, uh, I guess 10 people, strangers who became friends every two weeks to study this old, uh, this little book called, um, ethics of the fathers or Perke Avot. It's this little Jewish wisdom text. That's kind of part of the Talmud. And, um, I've abandoned more books than I've written, uh, which I'm kind of happy about. I feel yeah. if you're doing something that doesn't feel like it's going to be good, you know, you yeah, give I mean, the money you, back. You've and written a lot, talked a lot about quitting, the like upside of quitting. I'm a big, I'm a big believer. Yeah, you're it. very I, pro quitting. I'm very pro quitting. Now, 
I don't know if that's because I'm just bad at sticking to things or I really believe in it, but I think I believe in it. I think that, you know, we just get preached this idea that if you quit something, if you don't see something through to completion, that you're a loser, that you're a failure. And I just think that's a crazy way to look at many things, not all things, you know. And in some cases, you know, you have to think, what's the cost of quitting? In some cases, you have to think about if I quit, how much does it hurt other people? Yeah. So there's a lot of variables. But our, the big point of that is that it's easy to overlook opportunity costs, like what can I be doing instead? So my biggest quit was a career quit, which is um, my first, you know, I played music and I was in a band and I, and I loved it. I mean, loved, loved, loved it. Um, and it was difficult. Being in a band is kind of like being married to three people at the same time. It's complicated. But um, I ultimately did quit that while we were in the middle of making our first record for Arista Records because I just decided that I didn't want that life ultimately. And the as we started to get a little bit more successful, I got exposed I got exposure to some other people who were getting who some other bands who were super successful. So Springsteen, actually I once got to chat with a little bit and I, I didn't say to him like Bruce, you know, our band's doing well, but I'm ambivalent. What do you say? But we did talk a little bit about I'm when, having some doubts, boss. Yeah. I, I wish I probably should have. <laughs> I think this was during his Born in the USA tour. He was in Greensboro, North Carolina, and I was living near there. And I went to see him, and we were buddies with this great band called the Del Fuegos. You remember the Del Fuegos? Sure. And we had the same manager with them, and they I, they were awesome. And I went to see them, and Bruce Springsteen showed up between their sets. I mean, they're playing this bar with two sets. And he's playing at the Coliseum the next night, and he's like, hey, like your guys' records, maybe you want to play a couple encores together. And he had Niels Lofgren with him. So that was cool. So it was like the Del Fuegos and Bruce and Niels and me in the back beer room of this bar. And so um, what impressed me about him, uh, besides the obvious stuff, is this was when he had blown up huger than huger than huge with Born in the USA. And he had talked in the press a little bit about how he really did not like the ramifications of the fame, how weird it was to travel around and not own your own face and your own time anymore. And that made an impression on me. R.E.M. was a band that was, we were in North Carolina, they were in Georgia, so we ran into them and they were super, super nice, super helpful guys to younger bands. And uh, they were starting to get big when we were starting to, you know, get a contract and stuff. And they were handling it as well as it could be handled. But I just kind of looked down the road and I thought, I don't think that's the life I want. I'm, I just wanted to be able to come home at the end of every day and have some kind of family and a little house with a fence or something. Hiya. This is uh, That Point in the Show. Why pause things? Tell you a little bit about our sponsors this week. First up is The Great Courses. For 25 years, The Great Courses has been delivering lectures from top professors and experts for the pure pleasure of learning. They've got over 500 series on tons of topics, including history, science, literature, philosophy, and more. And everything is available in any format, digital downloads, streaming, even CDs and DVDs. The idea is you can take these courses and you can learn on your own time. There's all kinds of great courses to choose from. There really are. Uh, a couple that we talked about on the show already, writing creative nonfiction, and another one, if you're just interested in sort of a general writing course, uh, how to engage and write about anything. It's taught by Professor Dorsey Armstrong of Purdue University, and it's designed to help you turn good writing into great writing on any topic. Uh, if either of those courses catch your ear, here's what you should do. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash longform. Those two and six other of their best-selling courses are available for up to 80% off. That's thegreatcourses.com slash longform. Go check it out. Thanks very much to them for sponsoring the show. 
Also sponsoring the show this week, Aspiration. Aspiration is a different kind of financial firm. Their idea is pretty simple. Take everything you don't like about investing and do the opposite. Traditional Wall Street firms work mostly for millionaires. At Aspiration, their investment strategies are built for the middle class. Signing up takes as little as 500 bucks in just five minutes of your time. Plus, you choose the fee you pay them, even if that fee is zero. They don't make a cent other than what you decide they deserve. I know that sounds crazy. Go learn more about it at aspiration.com slash longform. That's aspiration.com slash longform. Their motto is do well and do good. Go see what they mean by that. Now, here's something I have to say. Past performance is not indicative of future returns. There is no guarantee that any investment product will achieve its objectives, generate profits, or avoid losses. Investing involves risk, and alternative investments may not be suitable for everyone. Before investing, consider your investment objectives. Okay, let's get back to Stephen Dubner. I feel like people dream of being a rock star and getting a big record deal, and you got the big, like toiled for a while and got the big record deal. And then you were like, eh, I'm out, which is not the choice most people would make. Like the sunk costs right. are pretty deep at that point. But then you like went and like blew up in a different way. Yeah. I didn't mean to though. <laughs> <laughs> How are the ramifications of, uh, writing a book or a series of books that have been sold by like 8 million times at this yeah, point? So it's, it's different though. So it is true that, um, I've, I've gotten more better known as a writer than I ever thought I would be, but it's just magnitude, orders of magnitude difference. You know, if you're a performer, if you're a musician or an actor or whatever, people sit and on a screen or live, whatever, they, they sit and you are their field of vision. And that creates a relationship in, if nowhere else in their mind, where you are this public figure and you're recognizable and on and on and on. And um, the price of fame, I think, is really, really steep. And I think that almost no one who wants to get famous really thinks about the costs of it. And um, so I get recognized once in a while mm -hmm. now, but it's not burdensome. I've learned a couple, you know, like like every time there's a new book out, if we go on TV a bunch and do stuff like in the 30 days after that, you know, there's so many people on TV every day, right. that the half-life is really, really short. <laughs> right. You know, they'll forget you. In the, but in that month after, I always do something different to my fit. Like I'll either, if I, I'll either grow a beard before and then shave it or Just have to long cut hair. down on like the number of people on the subway who are like, I saw you on the thing. You're the guy. Kind of, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, there was a movie made about freaking out, a documentary that was pretty good that we didn't make. We kind of helped a little bit. And um, that was, that was the big one. That was like after the movie came out, plus it's on Netflix and that was the period of the highest recognition and it was i just i don't like it i yeah. don't you know it's i'm flattered that people want to come up and say hello um but it's not a comfortable f I, I really like the anonymity how has your life changed in these 10 years how how does your life change when you sell whatever it is eight million books i would like to say the biggest change or a, the biggest what lever that that got pushed is like some sense of like quote success or what do you mean by that like it's not as though I consider myself a better writer now than I was the, for the five or 10 years before Freakonomics, you know, like most of my, many of my friends are writers. Many of them write really good books. Many of them work really, really hard. Most of them are, are better educated than me, if not smarter and maybe often smarter. And, you know, there's a lot of luck involved. So I very much appreciate how lucky we got. 
and it didn't make me feel like, oh, now I'm bulletproof. Now I, I now I know that I must be a really, really, really good writer. And I don't feel like just because I sit down and type at the computer because I'm me, I'm going to be good. I don't have that feeling at all. It didn't bring like more confidence on that front? I was always pretty confident as a writer only because I work really, really hard at it. And I, and I, you know, writing is like the one thing that I really learned to do. Like I really, I've been writing since I was a kid, obviously in school, but like we had a family newspaper. I started the high school newspaper. We had a college newspaper. Then I wrote for f- newspapers while I was in the band. Then I when went. When you say you had a family newspaper, that's like your, your, your family put out a newspaper, not like you guys published a newspaper and then read it at dinner. Yeah, yeah, that's true. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, just well, had, no. I just had an idea that like maybe it'd be kind of nice to do like a family newsletter. Everyone well, contributing articles. No, it was no, it was that one. It was, it was that, that one. one. Yeah, it wasn't, it was like, like, we, internal... wasn't like we owned a newspaper. Oh, you thought like we owned a newspaper? Well, I, I the reason oh. I thought that was because I read something in your uh, in a bio somewhere yeah. that your dad was a newspaper. Writer. He was, but no, we definitely did not. <laughs> no, we were poor as crap. We were, we were. My dad was a copy editor at the. Schenectady Gazette, and then the Albany Times Union, then the Troy Record. There were three papers in these three cities upstate. And we had, and there were eight kids, and we lived on like this broken down farmhouse. So no, we had, we definitely did not own a newspaper. Um, but we did make a family newspaper. It was called the Quaker Street Quacker. Quaker Street was this little hamlet that was the closest town. It was very rural. And like all, all of us wrote articles for it. And, uh, you know, you had to like, and I was the youngest of eight, so I had to work really hard to get anything in it. it <laughs> to, was get, very, to get like a story on A1 was tough. Very, very tough. Yeah. Um, it's think, almost like you needed to act out for attention. <laughs> well, it is true. Like when you're the youngest in a big family, yeah. you never get to talk for like your whole childhood. So I've been sort of making up for it. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, like, it's not that I'm super confident in writing, but like, I, it's one thing I know how to do. Like, I really, I, I really like the feeling of that. Like one year between, uh, when I quit playing music and I was getting ready to go to graduate school for writing, um, I worked with my brother upstate New York as a carpenter. Cause I didn't like not knowing, like, I didn't like looking at a house and not understanding like what was behind the walls. And it just felt like something I should know. So I worked with him for a summer, which was really hard. But it felt so good just to learn how to like I became a pretty okay trim carpenter for, you know, for working three months. And I like that sense of accomplishment. And I feel that with writing because I know uh, I I don't always know how to make something really good, but I know when it's bad and I know to keep going at it until I can make it good. I I guess another question about like how your writing has evolved. You know, this is the first book that doesn't have Freakonomics in the title. And you guys have been like hitting this idea pretty hard for a while. Has your curiosity ever ebbed that during that time like at at any point you're like i don't have any more questions yeah a little bit so yes and no so the yes part is yes and (laughs) that um i get bored by formats right so like writing a book like freakonomics or super freakonomics think like a freak was pretty different for uh, for us i mean it might not seem that different to the average reader but to us it was it was fairly different but even so, in a lot of ways, it wasn't because it was a, a lot of different stories. It's well, not sort like, of taking the way that you guys think about the world and applying it to it. Right. And place. trying to be a little bit more prescriptive and so on. Right. But no. So like that kind of format. Yeah. Pretty tired of it. And in a way, even though this book was a compilation, putting it together was really fun just because it was very, very, very different. And it felt a little bit more like being an editor at The New York Times again. Right. We did this one project that The Times Magazine when I was there. It was the 100th anniversary of the magazine. I think it was 1996. And uh, we did three 100-year anniversary episodes. One was a photo issue. Issue, sorry, not episodes. One issue was a photo issue, which, by the way, was how I met my now wife. She was. She is a great photographer who 
had a photograph that was selected for the hundred years and I had to like write up her bio and I didn't meet her then. But then a couple months later, she lived abroad. She was here and something had caught your eye in the bio. No, the weirdest thing about the bio was we couldn't get her age (laughs) and she was the only photographer whose age we didn't have. And I assumed the reason we couldn't get the age was because she was a woman who didn't want to give her age. And I thought, oh, geez, come on. It's the New York Times. We do facts. You got to do it. And as it turns out, they couldn't get her age because she was like traveling in Chechnya during the last the previous Chechen war. And she was like wrapped up to look like a man traveling with the Mujahideen. And that's why we couldn't reach her. So anyway, so finally I was set up with her and she was like age appropriate and awesome. And so I married her. So that was, um, that was one of the magazines, one of those issues. But then another issue was like, literally it was like the best writing from a hundred years of the New York times magazine. And you're like, come on, that's how do you even begin to do that? Sounds like so much fun, so much, not fun. So, (laughs) but, uh, so it was literally like sitting down with the the books, the stacks, and you're yeah. reading like W.B. Du Bois and Norman Mailer and on and on. So <laughs> you're like, oh, this is terrible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so when to rob a bank, I don't mean to equate this, that to that, but it was the same process, which is sitting down and reading, in this case, about 8,000 posts. And that process was really fun. Right. So, I mean, what I'm hearing you say is just like, uh, and this is evidenced by podcast, blog, like different kinds of books, column in the Times Magazine for a while. But that was all almost the same. Well, the podcast is different. Podcast yeah. is different because the medium is very different. What I like about the podcast is I've always loved interviewing, right? So when we interview people for our books, well, you know this, if you're interviewing for radio versus print, if you interview someone for print, you might talk to them for eight hours and end up using, if you put it in real time, you know, five minutes of quotes. That's the way if you're writing a long magazine piece or something. Right. But with radio, it's like the interview is the material and that's different. And I like that medium and I like the storytelling. So radio is different um, to some degree. Yeah, I like it. One of the things I like best about this is that you can't really like you can't go back and and do it over or go get more. It's like it is what it is. I'm going to walk out of your house and walk out of your office uh, and then that's it. Whatever we got, we got. You know what else I really like about it? I, I like I like that it's intimate, that when you hear someone talk, you feel like they're you know talking to you maybe more than a book. But I also like that I feel you can really tell the character of a person through their voice incredibly well. I think it's easier to deceive in writing. So like, you know, if people are hearing my voice now, they might think, oh, he sounds like a total pompous jerk or, oh, he sounds like a perfect whatever. But there's so much information contained in your voice. There's all this inflection and there's word choice and there's accent and on and on and on, which uh, I like. I had this uh, very disconcerting moment uh, where I like met someone at a bar. He was like, uh, what are you doing? I was like, oh, I do this thing. I host this podcast. And he was like, oh, man, you're Max from that show. I listened to that show. I'm very surprised. I thought you were going to be like a, a very large man in a fedora. <laughs> Well, you're pretty large. I mean, large, tall wise. No, no, no. He meant like a fat man in a oh, fedora. Fat. Yeah. Really? Yeah. He meant That's like, so interesting. I thought you were going to be like a obese person. Did you ask him why? Yeah. I just he- kind of like shriveled into a ball of insecurity. <laughs> <laughs> the most common email that Levitt and I get these days is from people telling us that when they see our pictures, they are sure that we have it backwards <laughs> for whatever reason that the voice they hear of Levitt, they think looks like uh, they sounds like what I look like huh. and vice versa. And I, and I always ask them, I said, what, what makes you think that? And it's interesting because they, they say that they think of like academics as being kind of scruffy and a little hippie looking, which I might, an impression I might give. And I'm like, do you know any yeah, economists? He kind of looks like a quarterback. 
A quarterback? Yeah. Wow, that is very flattering. I'm going to have to tell him <laughs> that. A quarterback. An, uh, football? American football quarterback? I've only ever seen him like on TV, so if he's like a small man, then... No, uh, he's not small. He's um, he's like a square-jawed guy. Yeah, but he's he's more like a golfer. Okay. Like a trim, like a trim Minnesota golfer build. Yeah. <laughs> Minnesota golfer? Well, he's from Minnesota, oh, and right. he's a golfer. I thought so. some like, specific kind of golfer. No, it should know. be, but... Well, while while we're on the topic of Levitt, I, I feel like uh, this is a, a show about writing and the process of writing, and I'm really interested in how you guys work together and how that partnership works from a sort of like step by step pragmatic sense. Like, how yeah. do you, from that first book to now, like how do you write a book together? Like, is there one Google Doc you're sharing? Like, no. how's it work? No, we we kind of tried that in the beginning. I mean, the first book was before Google Docs, unfortunately. Sure. It might have worked with that, actually. Now that I think about it, the first thing began when we started to write, um, I guess, a proposal for the book together. And we kind of did that over the phone. And I would, quote, write it. But, you know, we'd talk a lot. And Levitt obviously has a lot of great ideas and he'd done a lot of great research. So there was tons and tons of material. But then when we began to actually, I remember, I, I do remember one night in New York, I guess we'd maybe either signed a contract or knew we were going to get a contract. And we were in, it was either Carnegie Deli or Stage Deli. Um, because I used to live right there on 7th Avenue in the 50s. And we just sat down and I just had a notebook and he just started blurting, you know, ideas. I knew a lot of his research by then, but there was stuff I didn't know. He also knew a lot about a lot of other economists' research. And we just started to literally throw out hundreds and hundreds of tiny ideas to big ideas and think about how to sort of maybe put them together. So that was fun. And that was just, you know, typical brainstorming. Then maybe a few weeks later, uh, I went to Chicago for a few days to start writing the book with him because we didn't know, like you don't, like we had no idea how we were going to do it. And what happened is we sat in his office at the UFC, University of Chicago, and I had my laptop in my lap and he's just sitting there. And we literally, we try to quote, write together, like me being the typer right. and, and him being like the talker. Down to like the sentence level? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we try that. And we did that for about two or three days straight and it was just stupidly bad. How it, so? When there's two of you trying to think at the same time and say stuff neither of you can think. And I was trying to be respectful of his sentences. And look, I think for an academic, he's a pretty good writer, but he's not a writer. Right. Just like I'm not an empirical, I, I can't do a regression analysis. He, but also he, like you guys, you didn't know each other that, that well. We that did, that's true. So this was kind of a figuring each other out process, right. getting to know each other it's process. Like, but you were also in like an arranged marriage. Like, like it had. That's very true. And there was no guarantee. But what had convinced us that it would work is we had a really, really, really good time putting together the proposal. We uh -huh. just like, we had the same kind of sense of, you know, humor. If it is, you know, if you call it that and we both like neither of us took takes ourselves that seriously we it was it was all meant to be kind of in good fun so we did that for a couple days and it was plainly not working I wasn't that worried about it because you know it's a process and then that night uh, I was staying with him at his house with his family they lived in Oak Park at the time and uh, I remember it was it was the night of uh, a Yankees Red Sox um, AL maybe it was the final Aaron Boone I think it was the Aaron Boone home you run. You didn't just bring up the Aaron sorry Boone. you yeah, Red Sox it. fan yeah oh if I'd known that I would have brought it up there's, way sooner there's no question we're editing this out sorry <laughs> so I think Freakonomics was born on that night actually so I was I was watching I was sleeping like on the couch in the living room and that game was on and I wasn't trying to work. And then the game ended and I was happy because I'm a, kind of a Yankees fan. And then I wanted to go to sleep, but I had like a bad, just like head cold. I just, I felt crappy. I couldn't sleep. So I just pulled out the laptop and I sat at his uh, kitchen counter 
And uh, I just started to kind of type basically what we'd been trying to do in his office, but just different. Just I was just me in my head. You know, when you're a writer, you kind of need to get to that place. And I wrote what is essentially the intro of uh, Freakonomics, which is, you know, a set of I don't even remember exactly three, I think, stories. One was abortion and the relationship to crime. One was maybe campaign spending and how it doesn't affect electoral outcomes so much. Third one, I don't remember. I think there was a third one. Um, And I wrote it in what I thought was a really good hybrid of like, I'm a writer who knows how to tell these kind of stories and I know the material fairly well and he's the guy who generated a lot of this material and uh, I thought it was like you know possibly pretty good and then uh he woke up then I finally went to bed in the morning I said hey I you know wrote and it was maybe I don't know 1500 words um, which for me is a lot I'm a really slow writer and he read it and he said he said that doesn't sound at all like me and I said oh shit and I said, well, you know, sorry, you know, I, I was just messing around. And he said, no, and I love it. And that's when I knew that he was going to be a great partner because it wasn't like it was so great. And it wasn't like I didn't need him. I needed lots and lots and lots of him. But like, we really believe in each other as partners. Like, I believe he's really, 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 really good at what he does, which has been, you know, verified. He's won awards and blah, blah, blah. And he believes that I'm good at what I do. And therefore, it's a really good partnership in that way. And so once we did that, we found a way for, we'd say, okay, let's say this chapter, how might we want to start it? He might have an idea. I might have an idea. Then he might kind of talk me through a a way to tell it. He might not. Then I'd write a bunch. I'd send it to him. And he'd usually read it and come back with a bunch of commentary. And, um, so some of it, you know, has his handprints on it very, very, very heavily. Some of it less so. And do you think of your role as providing not just the writing, but sort of narrative, like the storytelling part of his ideas? Yeah. Although I will say he will often have a really good idea for how to tell a story. And we talk about storytelling a lot. He and I uh, we were talking just yesterday about this new book project that we're, we're trying to work on about what I always think of as, you know, what Chekhov described as where in the arc of the narrative do you cut into the story? Because, like, you know, if you're an amateur, you say there was a man named da 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 um, But if you cut into the arc in the right place where there's already a kind of friction or tension established and you know that the writer knows where, where the friction or tension is, but the reader doesn't, and that's kind of the fun of it. Now, that's in fiction, let's say, but in nonfiction, it's, it's very similar. And I learned that from magazine writing at New York Magazine and then at the New York Times Magazine. You learn that there are you know, conventions and tricks and, and manipulations. None of these, I don't mean them pejoratively at all, but that's what makes writing great. You can shift time, you can shift pace, you can shift uh, voice. Um, you can introduce a character that you think is going one way. Then five pages later, you reveal that they're going in a different direction. You know, that's that's what I like about writing is, um, you know, pulling the thread through. And and for the podcast, even even though, again, it's very different. I, that's my favorite part of the podcast. After you do all the interviews and you get the script, I love trying to set it up in a way that when the listener first hears the first little scene, which might seem totally orthogonal to the story that you get to, you pull that thread and pull that thread and then try to have it pay off in the end. So if that was your part of the role and Levitt was kind of bringing the the ideas, the questions and the data analysis. Well, and he had done like 15 years worth of great research. Right. So that first book is really sort of synthesizing the work he had done so far. But 10 years later, have you guys met somewhere in the middle? Like, have you started to think more like Levitt? I think I probably think more like him. But I mean, the fact is, is that, you know, we used over the first two books, we used up 
you know, the vast majority of his best original research. And then there's research that other people do and so on, some of which we've written about. But unless Levitt goes into his office and closes the door for another five years and writes another 30 papers, I don't think we'll write another book like that. Now, he might, and I, I would love him to, and I would help him do that research because that'd be fun. But that takes a lot, a lot of time. It's like the podcast, again, because it's a different medium, the podcast is really just me going out and being a report, just talking, interviewing people. Right. I mean, the podcast is kind of your thing. It is, although I love that he, uh, whenever I ask him, I say, you know, like he probably appears in about, I don't know, a third, a quarter or a third of the episodes. And whenever there's an episode that I think he'd be really good for, I'd say, hey, you know, would you do this? And he always does. And he's always great. So even though it's kind of my thing, he, um, you know, he's, he, he likes it too. Plus, you know, it's fun for him. He gets to just show up, talk for a few minutes and then be the star of the show, which is really good. You know, <laughs> yeah, he, likes good it, he likes that Somebody else is doing all the work. Yeah. I saw this thing. You did this thing on life hacker. That was like how I work. And it was like um, a picture of this office yeah. and not this office. That was the old office. Different Similar. Office. There's a thing in there, a standard thing they do. Those how I work features are such like Great clickbait. I had I read every single one, but there was uh, there was something that said current gig, and you said I'm a writer and I do radio, and uh, it's all free economics right now, uh, but it wasn't before, and someday it won't be. Yeah, and I'm I'm interested in whether you think there is a uh, an endpoint for this stuff, and whether at some point you will not be Stephen Dubner of free economics. Yeah, so I mean that's happening kind of right now. So we may do another book together soon. We may do a book together, another book together much later, and we may never do another book together. I mean, we have we have plans to do them, but we're we're both big believers, and if they're not going to be good, then then you should throw them away. Um, Gotta quit. But, yeah, exactly. But um, so one thing that I'm getting ready to do now that I'm way too excited about is uh, this game show that I invented called "Tell Me Something I Don't Know," which is um, it's kind of a hybrid quiz show talk show with a live audience and we piloted it last year and taped it for radio and we put it out as an episode in Freakonomics Radio but to me this would be like super 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 fun uh, I host it and yeah. you get to have the, this guest panel celebrity panelists we had uh, Malcolm Gladwell Anna Gasteyer and uh, former New York Governor David Patterson who is unbelievably hilarious and um, so that was fun and I want to make that a regular uh, like public radio show and podcast so that's a plan uh, we're also planning to pilot it for tv so uh i've always been tv is a weird beast and it's not uh, i don't love it because it's um as a writer you don't have much leverage in there but we're going to try that and then i also have a couple other radio projects that are that i'm piloting now for whatever reason the foreseeable future is more podcast radio audio than book writing that's interesting i think my assumption had been that at some point you just rip the bandaid off. Like mm. you're, you're done with Freakonomics. It was an era of your life <laughs> and then it's done. But it sounds like instead the way you sort of see going forward is on kind of like two oh, tracks. Like yeah. you'll be doing that and you'll be doing your own thing. Yeah. So I didn't, um, so I guess I didn't answer the question the right way when you asked if like I'm sick of it. I gave you the yes part of the, you know, is it over? And the no part is no. The, the mode of thinking like a freak I think I'll do forever because it's fun and you can apply it to anything you can apply. It. It's, it's not, it's not topic related. It's not topic dependent. You know, it's not about economics. It's like an economic way of looking at the world. And you could just as easily have a, a, 
a psychological way of looking at the world, an anthropological or a theological way of looking at the world. And then you turn that kind of frame toward any topic. Could be golf, could be parenting, could be whatever. So, no, I, I don't think I'll run out of asking the questions. Yeah. Asking the questions. I mean, that's the fun. That's the fun part. Honestly, really, mostly what I do is I walk around thinking about stuff, looking at stuff, wondering why it is the way it is. And nine out of 10 of those questions are turn out to be uninteresting or unanswerable, whatever. And then you find the one out of 10 that's good. And then you do something with it. It's, it's really, that's it. Pretty well, basic. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Seems like a, uh, a good place to end. All right. Hey, Steven, thanks. That was thanks fun. Thanks very much for taking the time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lambert and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern this week, Rachel Mabe. Thanks to them. Thanks to all of our sponsors, including Aspiration. Aspiration's motto is do well and do good. You can learn more at aspiration.com slash longform. And thanks so much to Stephen Dubner for taking the time. The new book is called When to Rob a Bank. The old book is called Freakonomics. I really appreciate him going back in time and uh, talking about the origin story. Appreciate it. We'll see you next week.